We're in John chapter 20 this morning, uh, as we're going to be in God's Word. Hey, if you're here for the first time with us or visiting, uh, we've been in a series called Simply Encounters with Jesus, in which we're looking at, at all of these various scenes in the Gospels where individuals encounter Christ Jesus. And, and we look at particularly the way in which he moves towards people, but also what they learn and what they experience from him and what we can learn from Jesus from that. And this morning we come to a grieving woman named Mary Magdalene as she encounters Jesus. And where we're going actually for the next month, beginning with this morning, is the, the series is going to become more defined. It's going to be encounters with the risen Jesus. And so we're going to pick up in John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 18, although our focus will be just the back half, the second half of that passage, 11 through 18. Hear God's word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, don't know, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, and then we reach the passage that we'll focus on this morning. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, an infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, there was a man who, um, a number of years ago, who flew to Mississippi, and he went to find his grandparents' old home, where they had lived when he was a young boy. And he went and he knocked on the door of the house, and the person living there answered the door. And he asked the person, hey, would you mind if I just sit out here on the porch for just a little bit? You see, I, I'm, this was my grandparents' house, and I've come back to reflect on some things from my childhood. And they said, absolutely, take, take all the time that you want. And he said, I, I know this is very strange, but I, I just want to let you know, I'm not a crazy person, but I'm here on assignment, actually, uh, by my counselor, because, I, and, and don't, don't, don't be alarmed if I'm out here with him shedding a tear, 
because this was the place here on the porch where I stood when I found out that my father and my oldest brother had died in a plane crash. And I was 12 years old, and from that moment on, my life trajectory shifted. And that event in my life has had a ripple effect in my marriage, in how I live, and how I work. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to sit out here for just a little bit and reflect on that day. Now, we all know that there are events in life like that boy's. Events so traumatic and horrible and harsh that it changes the trajectory and colors the rest of our life. We go on and we keep living, but those things affect us for the rest of our lives. They, they take a direction of our life downward. Perhaps you've heard, maybe the sentences often begin like this. My life was never the same after she left me. Or I can still remember the day that I got the news. Yes, we know there are life events that can alter the trajectory of our life in a downward way and shift our life to a life that is, frankly, colored by mourning, by sorrow. And that is where Mary Magdalene is when we pick up the text this morning. She has watched the one that she loves, Jesus, die in the most brutal way. At the beginning of John 20, all the hopes that she had placed for who Jesus is as a Messiah are now dead and gone. They are in the grave. And it says there in verse 11 that she is weeping. She is weeping. Realize the sad place of where this passage begins. That is the state of the world. A world that is weeping and wounded. And that untold sadness sits in this room as well. You carried it with you. Dale Bruner, who's a a wonderful commentator on the book of John, said this. If pastors could have x-ray vision, emotional x-ray vision, and they could see into their congregation's lives and hearts and all that you are carrying, they would weep and they would not be able to stop. You know, we we greet Easter every year with our bright colors and our pastels like pink and blue and canary yellow and bunnies and marshmallows and peeps and Cadbury A's with with disgusting yellow goo that oozes out of them. And, And this can all give us the false impression that everything in the world is all right. But the truth is, is we are in the midst of sadness as well. There is injustice and there are so many things in the world to weep over. And that is the context of the first Easter. It is darkness. John puts it there purposely. It is quiet. There is isolation for this woman. And she is there weeping. That's the context. And so once more, let me say it again. We know that there are events in our life that alter the trajectory of our life into a place of mourning. But here's the question. Is there an encounter so wonderful And so powerful and so uplifting that it reverses that trajectory of mourning and sadness. And John 20 says yes. John 20 begins with Mary Magdalene in mourning and it ends, our passage this morning ends with Mary no longer in a place of mourning but actually now in a place of mission. From mourning to mission. So what do we see this encounter? What makes this happen? What turns her life from mourning to mission? An encounter with the risen and reigning Jesus. And so what do we see in this encounter with Jesus this morning that reverses her life from one of mourning to one of mission? 
Three things. First, what does Jesus do as he comes across this woman and as she encounters him? First, the risen Jesus confronts her, confronts Mary. This is verses 11 through 15. Mary is not excited about the absence of Jesus' body from the tomb. That does not excite her. It distresses her. In fact, she is deeply distressed. The language of, of, of crying there or weeping is correct. She is sobbing. She is not wiping away a manly tear. This is not misty-eyed. No, this is a despairing, deep, and guttural grief. And, and not even getting confronted by angels distracts her from her sense of loss and despair. Everywhere else in the Bible, when angels show up, it seems to get people's attention. Angels speak to her, why are you crying? And she doesn't say, oh my goodness, angels are here. Or she doesn't respond with excitement, yay, angels are here, that must mean something good. No, all Mary Magdalene can think is this, who took his body and why would they do that? You see, Mary's response isn't, hallelujah, he is risen, as if the Bible, and we, we tend to think of the Bible characters as kind of walking around in this Bible verse kind of multiverse where they all have stone jars and scrolls and a miracle happens every other Tuesday. No, Mary exists in our world and in our world, dead people don't rise from the dead. Dead people don't rise from the dead. And so what does Mary assume? She assumes not that Jesus is risen, but that someone has taken his body. Now, this is an important point about the Bible because one of the things that people assume about these early accounts, the early eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, is that it's just ancient people who are given to superstitions and myths. And so, that, of course, someone like Mary and the early Christians would believe something about Jesus rising from the dead. But that is not the case. That is not the response of everyone who followed Jesus. Jesus, on at least three occasions, makes it very clear to his followers, to Mary Magdalene and his disciples, he says, look at me in the eyes. I am going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead in three days. And yet, what do we see with Mary Magdalene and the disciples? Are they tailgating outside the tomb? Are they waiting there on Sunday morning for Jesus to rise again? No. Why? Because they don't believe him. Because they believe it is a preposterous thought that the resurrection would happen as well. And so for Mary Magdalene, the missing body of Jesus is only vinegar in a wound of her grief and her sorrow. And I do want you to understand this, and this is important. Having affection for Jesus is not enough by itself. Liking who Jesus is and liking what he has even done in your life, if it is unmixed with a faith and trust in his ability to defeat death, then your affection for him will fall short of life change. And so in order for Mary to move from mourning to a place of mission, Jesus first has to confront Mary where she is in her sorrow. The angels do it. Why are you crying? And then Jesus shows up as well, and he asks the exact same question. Woman, the, the tone of the Greek is, is, is gentle. Woman, why are you crying? At the outset, you can see the remarkable tenderness of this interaction. Jesus moves towards her. You know, there's actually several places. When Jesus shows up in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what he often does is he comes and his first words to people are questions. It's an invitation. Jesus, like a good counselor, doesn't show up and says, hey, I got propositions to give you. 
No, he comes to Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the garden after they've fallen and they're sinful. And his first question, he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? The questions of Jesus are similar. He asks, why are you crying? But this is a gentle rebuke of Mary. And then he asks the second question that is very telling. He says, who are you seeking? Who is it you are looking for? And this is a penetrating challenge to Mary. In other words, Mary, you have loved me, but you have not actually trusted my words and my promises, and that is why you're crying. That is why your grief has no hope. Mary, who are you looking for? Mary, you're crying because you're looking for the wrong Jesus. She is looking for a Jesus that she loves, yes. In in all the Gospels, there is no one who maybe displays more affection and love for Jesus than Mary Magdalene. And yet he says, Mary, you're looking for a Jesus that you love, but you're still looking for a dead Jesus. A dead Jesus. And therefore, you cannot find him because you're looking for the wrong Jesus. She's looking for a Jesus who is loving and kind and gracious and healing, but not the Jesus who can defeat death. So let me ask you, what Jesus did you show up for today? Are you looking for Jesus who is your friend? He is that. But no friend of mine can defeat death. Are you looking for a Jesus who is your therapist? He is a wonderful counselor. But all the counselors I've been cannot reverse the things that have happened in my life. Are you looking for a Jesus who is inspiring with his kindness and his teaching? Yes, he is kind and gentle and his teaching is amazing. But no mere gentleness can defeat death. There must be a power, an awesome power that can defeat death. Does your grief about the world, the state of this world, and your world say that you believe in a Jesus who has defeated death? If you don't believe in Jesus who defeats death, then you will find yourself either run overrun with depression and anxiety or constantly simply trying to numb yourself from the realities of the world. And you just want Jesus there to numb you. But that is not what he came to do. He came to say, what Jesus are you looking for? He confronts Mary in her hopelessness. So I ask you, who are you looking for today? What Jesus? Second, Jesus, in moving Mary from mourning to mission, he first he confronts, but then he calls. Verse 16, Jesus makes another effort to break through Mary's heart, and he does so with one single, simple word, her name. Mary. And it must be one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. The risen Christ calls one of his dear ones to herself by her proper name. She had turned her back to him after she had asked the question about if he had taken away the body. And she is now looking back into the tomb. When she hears her name, suddenly she turns and her eyes are opened. What we actually have here is John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 in living color. In John chapter 10... Jesus is teaching and he's using the imagery where he is a a metaphor where he is the shepherd and he's talking about his people, the sheep. And he says this, picking up in John 10, verse 3. The sheep hear my voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and his sheep follow him for they know his voice. They know his voice. He knows her name, 
and she knows his voice. You see, Jesus is no cold, formal Christ. He is not frozen in the Apostles' Creed in some two-dimensional doctrinal statement. He is a Christ who is personal. He calls out his sheep by name, and he leads them out, out of unbelief and out of grief and out of hopelessness. This is why he came. And this is not a new thing about our God. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The call of Jesus Christ in the gospel, when it comes to us in the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, have you ever been someplace in the midst of a sermon or in a place of worship and you sensed that that word right there was for me? That's God calling you by name. And the fact that you're here this morning hearing the word of Christ is profoundly personal. We do like to make a big deal about corporate things because we want to push against American individualism. But my goodness, when God saves, he saves personally. What's beautiful in John chapter 20, there's multiple people who encounter the resurrected Jesus. And for each one of them, Jesus draws them to himself in different ways. Mary, in just a second, we're going to see, hey, don't cling to me. In the very next passage, we're going to see, he says to Thomas, who is doubting, he says, put your hands in my side. He comes to us, and he reaches us in the way that we need to. To hear God call you, that is a sweet thing. And what is interesting here is because she's looking for the wrong Jesus, she will not find him, but I have good news. If you showed up looking for the wrong Jesus, you may be seeking him They're in the wrong way. But the beautiful thing is all encounters with the real Jesus becomes not because you pursued him, but because he pursues you. Jesus is the one who initiates to her. He is the one who approaches her. He is the one who asks questions. He is the one who breaks in. And he is the one who knows her name. If he sat back and said, well, Mary, you're a great spiritual seeker. Seek and you will find. And as long as you work hard enough, you'll figure it out. And you'll eventually find me. But that's not how it works. It's not salvation by seeking. It's not salvation by us finding him. It's salvation by him finding us and confronting us, even in the midst of our unbelief. And at the place of our grief. And in my experience, that's actually the place he most finds us. And we are most receptive to hearing our name called as in the midst of our grief and our fear and our sorrow. Some of you may know the name C.S. Lewis. He wrote a, a series of books called Chronicles of Narnia. And listen, if you're not familiar with it, that's fine. It's, it's Christian sci-fi. So, I mean, that, that only has so much of a reach, honestly. But he writes this book about Narnia, which is this alt kind of uh, um, parallel universe where animals talk and the, 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 the God or Jesus character is a lion named Aslan. And in the course of the books, there's one boy named Eustace who has entered this kind of, he creates these portals between our world and the Narnia world that God does. And God creates this portal that Eustace has gone through and experienced some, had some adventures in Narnia and he's met Aslan. And he's back in the real world, our world, and, and he's with a friend named Jill. And Jill and Eustace are at a British boarding school. And they're being chased like bullies, which is exactly how I'd imagine most British boarding schools, uh, that, that, that experience of, of them would be like. And so they're being chased, and they're, they're very scared. And Eustace, who's been to Narnia, actually starts calling out for Aslan. 
Aslan, Aslan. And Jill, she doesn't know anything about Narnia, but she's like, listen, I don't know who Aslan is, but I'm going to call for him as well. And she starts calling out, Aslan, Aslan, help. And suddenly this door appears in the wall, and they go through it. Again, Christian sci-fi, just hang with me. And it is there that they meet the lion. They go through the portal, through the door, and they enter into Narnia. And Jill's like, wow, this is insane. Narnia is real. And Aslan says to them, Jill, I have called you here for a mission. And she looks at Aslan with some consternation, and she goes, what are you talking about? Wait a second. I was the one calling you. The bullies were chasing us. And I called your name. And Aslan responds like this. You would not have been calling me unless I had called you first. And that is the truth of the gospel. That you hear your name called, not because you called Jesus first or because you had the ability through your intellect or your emotional sensitivity to find Jesus. He had to find you. And he had to call your name out and bring you to himself. And when he does, oh, the joy. First, he confronts. Second, he calls. Last, I want you to see that finally the risen Jesus commissions. Verses 17 and 18. It begins this way. Jesus said to her, she's excited. She says, teacher. She turns and she says, Rabboni. And then what does she do? She clings to him. She throws herself on him. Yeah, what, and then Jesus looks at her, and what is Jesus' response? Is Jesus like, ooh, warm hugs? Is he Olaf? No. What's he say to her? It's a very odd moment. Mary, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus like, listen, this robe is freshly pressed, really a lot of starch? Or is Jesus like, yuck, I don't like overly clingy, touchy people? Is that what's happening here? Well, Jesus, he says, stop holding on to me. Stop clinging to me. And he actually gives her two reasons. And the first is this. I have not, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to my father yet. This is an odd statement. In fact, commentators have really struggled with this. And they give, usually give about four different reasons as to why Jesus may be saying this. But I'm just going to give you the simplest and the one I think it is. Jesus is saying to her, Mary, you don't need to be worried, Mary. This won't be the last time we see each other before I've ascended to the Father. We'll have time to hug it out. And I say that because of the second thing, reason he gives her not to cling to him, which is this. Mary, I have a job for you to do. Mary, I have a job for you to do. So the point is this. Jesus is saying, Mary, don't cling to me. There's time for that later before I ascend. But right now, I have a job for you to do. I have good news and a message for you to share to my other disciples. And Jesus gives her this message. And what is the message that she is commissioned to deliver? It has two parts to it. it say, Jesus says this, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Two parts to the good news that Mary gets to share. Two aspects of the message. Mary's message of good news is about Jesus' family. She, it's an oddly phrased message here. more simply, Jesus could have said to her, Mary, go back to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to the Father. That seems like a more simple way to put it. But Jesus gets all flowery with it. No, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Why this peculiar emphasis on the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of Jesus? Well, simply, it's because one of the greatest benefits that comes to us because of the cross of Jesus Christ is that he removed the barrier 
from the father that we ran from. And that we've been longing to be restored to our whole lives. And because he took our sin, he has won for us the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And Jesus says, you are my brothers, and my father is now your father. And you're welcome into my family because I have removed the barriers of you being in the family of God. Family. Family is quite literally why some of you are here today. Like, your mom got you here because she guilted you into coming. She said, it's Easter, I know you don't normally come to church, but it's family. And this afternoon, you came into town because as a family, you're going to get together and you're going to eat. Some of you have traveled a great distance to here to be together with your family. Easter, by tradition, for many of us, is about family. But please understand, it's about family in more ways than you realize and recognized than when you schedule a big lunch today. Easter is about the fact that God has done everything through his son Jesus to invite you into his family and to call you sons and daughters. This is one of the great things that John brings up over and over in the New Testament. He begins his gospel this way, John 1.13. To as many as received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And in 1 John 1, John will later say this, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called a child of God. There is no privilege, and there is no reward, and there is nothing greater than being called God's son or daughter for wayward, hell-deserving sinners to be invited back into God's family and to be called his child. And that is the invitation to the gospel. Come home, brothers and sisters. Now, this is actually even more poignant for the disciples. Think about the last time the disciples saw Jesus and the last time that they had been with Jesus. The amazing news is what have been for the disciples to be called brothers. The last time Jesus saw the disciples, all he could see was their backsides as they shimmied out of the, the, uh, the, the Olive Garden, in which they pieced out as fast as they could because Jesus was being arrested. They all defected, just like Peter. They all denied Jesus. And if I was Jesus, and I rose from the dead, and I was vindict- if he was vindictive like me, I would go and say, go tell those pansies that I thought they were my ride or dies, but they abandoned me when I most needed them. Cowards. But that's not what he says. First words, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. And some of you, some of you have abandoned the faith too. You grew up in a place like this, and you have listened, you heard, and you, you sensed Jesus in your life, but life got too good, or life got too hard, and you decided to leave, and that's your choice, but I would say this, here's the graciousness of Jesus to you, he longs for you to come home, for you to come home and to experience your, the love of God the Father. And the welcome of Jesus, your brother. That's one part of the good news. Here's the other part of the good news. The message that Mary gets to bring is this, the good news of Jesus' ascension. Of Jesus' ascension. Now notice that the message that Jesus gives her doesn't tell her to tell them that he is risen. Interesting. He tells her to tell them that he is going to ascend. And this is important for us to actually realize, recognize about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. They are one whole. They are part of a continuum of what God is doing. 
that what we call Jesus' life, his incarnation, his life, and then his death on the cross is called his humiliation. What we see beginning with his resurrection and then with his ascension is called his glorification. And that is what is going on here. Don't just tell them that I've been risen. You see, Jesus' ultimate goal is not to be resurrected and then hang out on earth with his, with his disciples. Jesus' ultimate destination is to ascend to the right hand of God the Father where he will rule and reign as the king who has defeated death. That's why he came. And with the message that Jesus has risen from death to life and that he is going to rise from earth to heaven to be king over this world is a message that comes preloaded with this implication. All mourning will be reversed because he is king. The old is gone and the new is coming. And there's actually a metaphor, if you're a real Bible nerd, and I'm going to go Bible nerd on you for just a second. There's actually a beautiful metaphor going on here that John is bringing up. Do you see some of the, if you, if you, if you hear it, if you know Genesis 1 and 2, maybe you've, you've recognized it already. That there are shadows of Genesis 1 and 2 imagery that is going on. Mary comes to the tomb while it was dark. The Bible begins this way in creation, the first creation. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered. Mary comes when it's dark, and John tells us it's the first day of the week, not just to tell us that it's Sunday, and that's when we worship now, but to hearken back to the first, first day of God's creation. And then Mary thinks, what does Mary think that Jesus is? She thinks he's a gardener. Maybe it's because Jesus is pruning some hedges or planting a tree. But God in creation made a garden, and then he put Adam and Eve into it, and he said, cultivate it. But Genesis also tells us this. In Genesis chapter 3, that beautiful garden that God had put Adam and Eve in, that they rebelled against God. And so that garden fell with us. And now thorns and a curse infest everything. He says the thorns will infest the ground. And that thorny infestation, which has reached our emotional life and our mental life and our relational life, it has reached the highest point of government. It is, that thorn, that curse is everywhere. It infests everything. Jesus says, I have come to break that curse. And Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus came to take the curse and the high point, or he might say the low point, of, God, of God's curse upon this world is when the thorns of this world were put on Jesus' head. Literally, the curse of this world was put on Jesus' head so that he might take the, the curse for us. So that he might win for us the right to have life. And he does this now. That after having taken the curse, what he is doing for the rest of history is he is unrolling the thorns. He is racking it back up. Think of what they would do after World War I when they took all the barbed wire and they rolled it back up. That's what he's doing. One more science fiction illustration for you. A little bit more contemporary, Avengers Endgame. Okay, I know not everybody here is an MCU fan, and I'm actually not the biggest MCU nerd ever. But Tony Stark, he's Iron Man. If you remember in Avengers Endgame, he, what does Tony Stark do? Iron Man leaves his family and his friends, and he goes and fights Thanos because all these other kind of great heroes like Peter Parker. Peter Parker's been snapped by Thanos. And Peter Parker's like, oh, Iron Man, help me. And so he goes to fight Thanos, and actually, understand this, Thanos represents the fight against death. 
Now, nerd alert here for just a second. The Greek word for death is thanatos. Thanatos. And so Iron Man goes to fight, symbolically he goes to fight death, and he, what does he do? He takes Thanos' hand and the gauntlet, and he snaps it, and he kills Thanatos, but in doing so, Iron Man has killed himself. But because he has broken the power of Thanatos, the power of his curse, what happens? All of Iron Man's friends are set back to life. And this is what Jesus has come to do, to break the curse and to bring life to you and me so that he can bring bring death to an end and bring people out of the grave. And now that king who came to do that work, he now sits on a throne. And he says, I have brought my life into this world of death and I'm going to roll up the curse. I am reversing it and I am making all things new. And so he is orchestrating this rollback of the thorns from the throne of heaven and there is a formation of a new creation and a new garden such that when in Revelation, what do we see? What happens? A new Jerusalem, which is a garden city, comes down. What this means is there is a new ruler over this world. A chain-breaking, idol-smashing, sin-ending, creation-remaking king who is over all things. That's the message that she's bringing. He's going to ascend. Not just that he rose from the dead, but he's going to ascend. And so let me ask you this. Could your life, could your life be turned from mourning to mission like Mary's? Would Jesus do that for you? Or are you somebody who you believe to be too far gone? Let me tell you this, if Jesus would do it for Mary, then he could do it for you as well. I've buried the lead, which is a focus on Mary. Do you know who Mary is? Do you see the honor that Jesus gives to her? She is the first eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. She is the first Christian, not Peter and not John. They show up at the tomb. Jesus is somewhere hanging out in the garden, and he doesn't show himself to them. He purposely shows himself to Mary. She's actually called by theologians to be the apostle to the apostles. Because she's the one who's given the job of being the herald to all the men who will be called apostles. Now, I haven't talked about Mary much or her story, but we're going to end today by asking this. Who is Mary of Magdala? First, I want you to see that she's a woman, not a man. And women were second-class citizens or worse They were considered by many to be simply a holding, a slave. They were to be bought and sold. And in fact, women's testimony was not accepted in court. But more than simply her femininity and her womanhood, but more than that, I want you to know Mary of Magdala's story. Do you remember her story? For those of you who grew up in Sunday school? In Luke chapter 8, we find out that Mary of Magdala was demon-possessed. And she was insane. She says that she had seven demons cast out of her, which most scholars, the, the, the number seven, there's all the, you know, the numerology stuff. We won't nerd out on that too much. But most scholars believe that what that meant is she was completely filled up. Her whole life was consumed with demon possession. They had complete control. She was considered a mental patient, an insane person. And the only other place in the Bible that we get a clear depiction of what a demon-possessed person looks like was a man who was called Legion. He was filled with demons. And do you remember, he's in Mark chapter 5. What was his life like? He lived in a graveyard. He ran around naked. He would cut himself throughout the day. He would scream in the city. That's the kind of person that Mary was. You don't get much lower. On the social or the spiritual totem pole, 
And that is the person that Jesus deliberately chooses to be his first witness. You see, the wonder and delight of God is to bestow his grace and his place of honor to the Marys of this world. And has that been you? Are you one who is lowly, spiritually and socially? You're the one that Jesus calls by name and brings from mourning to mission, from sorrow to joy, from death to light, and from darkness to light. That's why John says, the light of Jesus comes into Mary's life and shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And that means that the sad things of this world, death itself, and our mourning, which may last for a night, does not get the final word. Mary's grief comes to an end. Her darkness comes to an end. And the final word that is spoken over your life is not death. It's he is risen. That's the final word. That's that's the profession of the Bible. One final story and then we'll close. In the 1950s in communist Russia, as they were seeking to shape the minds and the hearts of the Russian people, they would, um, the propagandists would go from town to town, and they would find good, great orators who would go in and speak against um, various religions, particularly against Christianity and the Orthodox faith. And there was one particular uh, uh, speaker that would go into these villages, and, and they would gather the people into the city a square, and they, they would, this order from the Communist Party would attack the resurrection itself. And, and they, would, they would attack it and they would try to dismantle all the reasons why anybody should believe the resurrection. And part of what they would do is they would bring the Orthodox priests of the, commu- of, the, of the community in there and they would have to sit on the podium with the orator and hear these arguments. And there was one particular place where uh, a, a one orator looked at the priest at the end of his, his, his oration about how the stupid it is to believe in the resurrection, how this is ridiculous, and he said to the priest, so prove your resurrection. And the priest, this priest who had ministered to these people in this town for most of their lives, he had baptized their children and he had married them. He had buried their parents and he had cared for them. He didn't try to respond with great intellectual arguments, although he had them. He simply responded from the Russian Orthodox liturgy, essentially from their book of common prayer of sorts. And he simply said this, he is risen. And without hesitation, the whole crowd thundered in unison. He is risen indeed. The word of the world is, grief is all there is. And mourning is where you'll be forever. But the final word of the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, he is risen, he is risen indeed. You may have death and sorrow and darkness in your life, but the final and work ultimate word, the theme of your song and the theme of your mission gets to be, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise be to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, um, I confess that my own confrontation this morning is that I, um, I want a Jesus who's just going to make life work for me. That's the Jesus I show up for most of the time. And so, Heavenly Father, I praise you that a Jesus that has risen and reigns and is Lord over death and life, that when my life is not working, that a resurrected power of Jesus is where I get to run. 
that I can know that you are the one who is defeating all the things in my life that are not working well, that you are bringing life out of the death in my life. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you do that in this room again, that you would confront those in this room who want a different Jesus or want no Jesus at all, that you would in this moment call them by name, and you'd cast us and commission us out to the great mission of proclaiming your kingship to the world. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you do that now. And hear our worship in the meantime. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.